0: If you're able, congregation, I always encourage the congregation to keep their Bibles open to 1 Samuel 31 this afternoon as we look at this passage and hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Word of God will come to pass. The Word of God will come to pass. And I say that and I repeat it because sometimes when you preach a sermon like this on such a passage like this, we can get lost in all the details. There's so many little... Uh, things that will be explained. We'll even take a little bit of a digression and talk about suicide and so on. And it's easy to, to get thrown off track. And, and what I want you to take home with you this, this afternoon, perhaps as we drive home and as we look over at each other and we talk to the children in the minivan, we can say to each other, the pastor preached that the word of God will always come to pass. And we can remind ourselves and each other of this in the coming hours, perhaps in the week ahead. We're left, of course, with that very glaring fact that we look at, at such a passage this afternoon. As we contemplate 1 Samuel 31, we're left, at the end of the day, when we, when we extract ourselves from all the minor details, from all the little digressions, all the little facts, we're left with the glaring realization that what the Lord wants us to hear more than anything else in this passage is that His Word will come to pass. That what He has ordained... What he has said will happen, will happen. As sure as fall follows winter. As sure as the sun rises every morning and darkness blankets the land every night, God's word will never, ever fail. In this world, in which no one's words can be trusted perfectly, God's word can be. And we see that again this afternoon as we, as we picture Perhaps in our mind's eye, if we're able to imagine this, as we picture all of these bodies scattered across the hills of Mount Gilboa. A gruesome picture, no doubt. That's something we want to actually imagine, but it, it, it gets even worse because we hear in this passage about, about suicide. We hear about beheadings. We hear about bodies being strapped to walls. And we shudder as good Decent Canadians, we shudder to imagine such a a sight. We'd rather not think about such awful things. But what I ask you to do, congregation, this afternoon, and what the word of God, I believe, asks you to do, is to look behind the blood and the gore, and the indignity of death, and see God's hand. And hear God's word echo over the battlefield, and over the wall of Beth-shan. The word of God that I'm referring to, is in First Samuel 28, verse 19. When the Lord says to, Samuel, or, or to Saul through Samuel, the Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. I ask that you would look past the goriness and the bodies hanging and the beheadings and listen to the voice of God echoing over all of this as he speaks in 1 Samuel 28, verse 19. Because the voice of the Lord had spoken. His prophet had announced from beyond the grave that Saul and his sons would die and that Israel's army would fall. And now we hear the rest of the story, as it were, in verse 6 of our chapter, chapter 31. We hear, So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. It's as... Isaiah says in, in chapter 40 of his prophecy, verse 8, the grass may wither, the flowers may fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Nothing and no one can turn aside what God has willed. And that's why we need to listen to this passage this afternoon, because the Lord our God has spoken. In fact, he has spoken a lot. All that he has spoken is contained in this book, from Genesis to Revelation. And we need to be reminded that we need to listen to God's word, because what he has spoken will indeed come to pass. The Lord does not lie or change his mind. And we see this as we listen to 1 Samuel 31 this afternoon. Under this this theme, the Lord fulfills his word of destruction to Saul. The Lord fulfills his word of destruction to Saul. We'll see in the first place that as the Lord fulfills his word of destruction to Saul, he does so at the hands of the Philistines and Saul himself. In the second place, at the cost of mockery to himself. And in the third place, we see that he does this yet with a measure of grace. But as the Lord fulfills his word of destruction to Saul, we want to see in the first place that he does so at the hands of the Philistines and Saul himself. Or we might say it in another way that, that Saul actually finished the job that the Philistines started. And actually, if we were to be completely truthful and faithful to the whole of Scripture, there was one more person who was involved. He was an Amalekite who claimed, at least he claimed, to have finished off Saul. But we don't read about him until 2 Samuel chapter 1. And so we want to stay with what's recorded for us in in 1 Samuel 31 this afternoon. And what's recorded for us in this chapter are the circumstances that led to the fulfillment of God's word spoken to Saul in chapter 28. And so let's read together verses 1 to 3 once again. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Let's just pause there for a moment. Now, we, if we know anything about the uh, Old Testament, we know about the Philistines. We know that they were formidable opponents of Israel, that they were what we would call a force to be reckoned with. They were very fierce fighters, They were skilled, they were well-armed, and they were very committed to their cause. We can give the Philistines much credit for these three things. They were very skilled, they were well-armed, and they were committed to their cause. They were very practiced in the art of war. They could do it well. They could do it very, very well, in fact. And they possessed something that all the other nations did not possess. They possessed iron-smelting furnaces. And with this, They could make metal tools and metal armor. And they could make for themselves something that other armies did not possess, which was iron chariots, from which they could then plow into the opposing armies that they were fighting against, doing maximum destruction and massive damage. But none of this, we have to remember, congregation, was the reason why we read that Israel sustained such a heavy loss that day. It was the Lord, Israel's God, who had willed Israel's defeat. In chapter 28, verse 19, as we heard, he proclaims that he would hand over the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. What we understand from that is that God himself, the sovereign ruler of the universe, in whose hand lie prosperity and hardship, sickness and health, success and failure, he was the one who had ordained that Israel, his beloved people, would lose this war. And there was nothing, and there was no one who could turn God's plan aside. And so it was very simple. The inspired author records it very simply for for us. The Philistines fought, Israel fled, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. But then he continues to tell us that the Philistines kept up the chase. They pressed hard, we're told, after Saul and his sons. Now, the, the Hebrew word that's translated pressed hard is actually translated in other places, cleaved. We hear that word, for instance, very familiar passage in Genesis 2, 24, when we hear that a man will leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. It's the same Hebrew word that's used here. In other words, what he's saying is that the, Hebrew, uh, the, the Philistines stayed on them. They stayed very close on them. They were, as we would say, they were breathing down their necks. The battle was not done until Israel's leaders were taken out. Well, sadly, we read of the death of Jonathan, loyal friend of David, and we read of the deaths of his brothers Abinadab and Malkishua. They also fell very quickly that day, it seems. Well, once the Philistines realized that they had killed the pups, It was now time to intensify their efforts against the top dog, the king himself. And so they pressed upon Saul, relentlessly trying to take his life. And we read, as recorded for us by the inspired author, that the archers overtook him. Interesting Hebrew word is is used here. The word that's actually uh, translated overtook actually comes from a verb that means to find. And so we can literally translate this, the archers found him. The archers found Saul. Now that can mean one of two things. It can mean that they basically at one point uh, got him in their sights and they had a clean shot and they took it and they shot Saul with an arrow. Or it can mean that a random arrow found its way and wedged itself into Saul. And we read about something similar in 1 Kings 22, verse 34. If you're familiar with that uh, part of scripture, in 1 Kings 22, we read that the king of Israel being shot between the sections of his armor by a random arrow. Somebody just fired off an arrow and guided, of course, by the sovereign hand of God. We don't believe anything happens by chance, but uh, it made its way between the sections of the king of Israel's armor and, and he finally died from it. Well, either way, whether it was a clean shot or a random arrow, Saul got what the Lord had coming to him. He was critically, we read, wounded. And the Hebrew describes his wound as putting him in great anguish. He was pierced so that he was in a great amount of pain. At this point, he could not fight. He could not flee. And then we hear in verse 4, One of the most memorable passages or verses in scripture, because of how gruesome it is, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. It's gruesome stuff. We have to admit that, but that's the Bible. It's very truthful. It's very realistic. It does not hide the facts. Saul finished what the Philistines started in that he impaled himself on his own sword. In effect, committing suicide, self-murder, taking his own life. Well, what was his reason for doing this? Well, we hear of two reasons. First of all, he wanted to avoid the Philistines running him through or thrusting him through. And, then, and the, the, there's a hint, a, a, a connotation, an implication of disgrace to the word that is used in the Hebrew. Uh, there's a the hint that if that not only would he be ran through or speared through, but it would be in a disgraceful way, in a way that would bring him shame as the king of Israel. There's a hint to the Hebrew word. Ironically, the, the spear-carrying Saul, who, if you read about him, he always carried a spear with him. He was always trying to, to spear somebody. Well, the spear-carrying Saul, ironically, wanted to be speared the shame of being speared by the Philistines. Well, what's the second reason that he did not want to be run through by them? He also did not want to be abused by them. The Hebrew word means to make sport of someone. Saul was afraid that they would mistreat him once they got him in their power. Now, what exactly that means, the word doesn't really reveal much to us. Uh, it, it, does it mean that they would have you know, perhaps tied him up, slapped him around, stripped him naked, shaved his head, dressed him up like a woman and chased him down the... Whatever it, they, they would have made sport of him in some way. Saul was trying to avoid that. He didn't want to get into their power where they would mock him and make fun of him. And so faced with that, he chose to take his own life. And we read that his armor bearer did the same thing. The sad thing about this is that we don't read anything of of repentance in Saul. We don't read of any confession of sin. We don't read of any cries for mercy or even cries for help to God. To Saul, we're left to come to the conclusion that to Saul, this was just a matter of his personal dignity, a matter of his personal pride. And so we're left to conclude that Saul died, and it sounds harsh, but we're left with nothing else to conclude but that Saul died an unbeliever. He died an enemy of God. And in fact, we base this not only on this present passage, but also of what we read, a parallel passage we might call it, in First Chronicles chapter 10. In First Chronicles chapter 10, we have recorded for us in verses 13 and 14, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. And so we are left with the conclusion that Saul died as the Lord had proclaimed and under God's judgment. That's why, ultimately, Saul died. But then, when we read a passage like this, there are questions that are raised in our minds. Questions not only about why Saul died, but how he died. And the reason why questions like these are raised in our minds is because sometimes, maybe most of us can say, that at some point, in one way or another, either directly or indirectly, our lives have been touched by someone taking their own life. Suicide. And so when we come across passages like these, the question arises in our mind, what do we learn here about suicide? Is you know, One of the questions that I get asked from time to time is, you know, can we say for sure that a person who commit suicide, that they are not saved, that they they are under the condemnation of God, that they will go to hell. That's one of the questions that's raised uh, to me sometimes by people whose lives have been affected by this. Well, what, what can we learn? Can we learn anything about... Uh, self-murder or suicide from a passage uh, like, such as this one? Well, not explicitly. And I say not explicitly in the sense that you don't find at the conclusion of the passage um, a, a verse like, and, and, and therefore the Lord says to his people, thou shalt not commit suicide or shalt, thou shalt not take their o- your own life. Uh, it doesn't say that explicitly. But we can certainly learn from passages such as this about this whole business of self-murder or suicide, as it's called in the Bible. And actually, apart from this, uh, this passage, there are actually five different occasions in the Bible that are recorded where people took their lives. We read about Judas Iscariot in Matthew 27. There's a man called Abimelech, that's the son of Gideon in Judges 9, Samson, Judges 16, a man named Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17, and a man named Zimri in 1 Kings 16. And here's the thing that all of these have in common. There's a consistency about all of these passages. All of these passages, all of these biblical records of people who took their own lives, they're presented in a negative light. They're presented as men who could not live with the consequences of their actions. They could not live with what their life had become because of their disobedience to the Lord their God. And so the suicides that are recorded for us in the Bible, I'm saying that, and and listen to me very specifically, the suicides that are recorded for us in the Bible reveal unbelief. Now, here's the other side of that. The Bible Does not report, it does not record of any believer who, say, ended his or her life while, uh, say, in the grip of mental illness, suffering through deep depression. The Bible does not record or reveal uh, of, of any believer who died or took their lives in this way. And so we have to place those who die as believers in a different category to those who are recorded in the Bible. On the basis of God's promise in Romans eight thirty eight, that neither life nor death can separate us from the love of God in Christ, I think we can say with much confidence that those who have died at their own hands, and I'm talking we're talking bona fide believers, those who have shown themselves to be believers, those who have died at their own hands, we can say, based on God's promise in Romans eight thirty eight, they are not lost. But you know, once I say that, I want to be very, very quick to add this. This is not to justify suicide in any way. It's not to promote suicide as a choice for us as Christians, ever. We are called, remember, to trust in the sovereignty, in the providence, in the wisdom and love of our God, always. Suicide is... Is not a choice. It's not a way out for us as God's children. Remember, the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that suicide, self-murder, is wrong. It's a sin. It's a violation of the sixth commandment. And I want to emphasize that as well. And so we are not to have, what we're trying to avoid is any romantic notions, a la Romeo and Juliet, about suicide. Suicide is ugly. Death is not cool. Suicide committed strictly for selfish reasons. Suicide committed to get back at somebody. Suicide committed to make somebody feel sorry or guilty for what they did to us. Suicide committed just to escape our financial worries is a sin. But at the same time, we are not to think of any and all suicides as an unpardonable sin. In all the biblical cases that are recorded for us, it was wicked men who perished by their own hand. The suicides recorded in the Bible reveal at the end of the day a deep-rooted enmity against God and a hatred for the consequences of their rebellion against him. There is no repentance recorded, there is no confession, no casting themselves upon the mercy of God. The most we read of Judas Iscariot in, in, uh, in Matthew is that he was remorseful. And we don't even read of that in the case of Saul. We read nothing of the sort. And so as Judas, as recorded in Acts 25, as Judas went to the place assigned to him, and we know that where that place Was, I think, as Judas went to the place assigned to him, so Saul died under God's condemnation. And he died as a fulfillment of God's word through Samuel. And that's the main point we want to take away from all of this, that none of God's word will ever fall to the ground. But we want to see in the second place that as the Lord fulfilled his word of destruction to Saul, he also did it at the cost of mockery by his enemies. Well, why do we say that? Well, let's look at verses 7 to 9 once again. In verses 7 to 9, we read, When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled, and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put their armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of beth Shan. And we read this, and we're left shaking our heads at the disgraceful behavior of Israel that day. Running away from their homes, They abandoned, says the Bible, the cities and fled. They forsook. They turned their backs on all that God had given to to them. They left it all behind and they ran for their lives. And this was Israel running away from what the Lord had given to them, what had now become theirs by divine right. The Lord had, of course, brought them into the land of Canaan, he had delivered their enemies into their hands. He had prospered them in this land. He had, even though they were so incredibly wicked. And yet, what was their response? We hear this back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They demanded a king from the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 verses 19 and 20, we hear of Samuel reasoning with them. We read in verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel and they said, no, no. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And God had acquiesced. And here they were now. They had received the king that they had so much wanted. And now here they were fleeing with barely the clothes on their backs. All of northern Israel was now in Philistine hands. The Philistines just waltzed in and took possession of what the Israelites had left behind. And one of the towns that the Philistines took was a town called Beth-Shan, or Beth-Sheen as it's called in other places. This was located in the valley of Jezreel, so not far from the battlefield. And it was probably taken and grabbed up real quick by the Philistines because, as obvious from the the passage, it was a walled city. And any fortified city in that time and in that culture was a prize. In Judges 1.27, we learn that this city had been assigned to the tribe of Manasseh. But now was the time of the Philistine occupation. And the next day, we presume after the Philistines had feasted and rejoiced and celebrated their their great victory, they went about plundering the dead. And lo and behold, what did they find? The bodies of King Saul and his sons. And we read, and again it's gruesome to hear about, But it's recorded for us in the Bible that they beheaded King Saul, maybe even even his sons. And they stripped off their armor and they hung the armor in the temple of their pagan god. And they hung Saul's body and his sons on the wall of Beth-shan. And the next thing they did is they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and all the people. The title of the sermon in all the pagan temples that day was we can presume the sovereignty of Dagon or maybe in the afternoon sermon the supremacy of Asherah over Yahweh. And that's why we say, congregation, that God's word concerning Saul's destruction was fulfilled at the cost of mockery by his enemies. And Certainly Saul's death and the fall of the Israelite army was God's will but this was fallout from that death and destruction. And so you see what happens. These pagans were given opportunity now to belittle the Lord, to speak scornfully of Him, to declare the superiority of their deaf, blind, and dumb gods over the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because in effect, the cutting off of Saul's head, that is, the, the, the of the head of, of the king of Israel, was symbolic of the cutting off of the Philistines' Of the, it was symbolic of the Philistines cutting off Yahweh's power. The armor of Yahweh's king hanging now in a pagan temple symbolized, at least to the Philistines, the weakness of Israel's God Yahweh, his inability to protect his people. The bodies of Israel's king and his sons hanging on Beth-shan's wall symbolized defiance to Israel's God by his enemies. And congregation, this mockery of God ought to strike our hearts as well, both as individuals and as the church. And we should be reminded by this passage that how we conduct ourselves in this world, how we carry out our calling reflects on our God. Our behavior, our choices has consequences, not only for us, but for God himself. What did Jesus command us? He said, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and then glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we're reminded by that, that the good that we do reflect on the God in whom we profess to believe. But Paul also tells us that we can cause God's name to be mocked as well. He warns us in Romans 2.24 about causing God's name to be blasphemed among unbelievers. Those who are outsiders, those who are from outside of the church. How do, we, how do we do that? He mentions stealing, adultery, idolatry, breaking any and all of God's commandments. He says that we can blas- cause God's name to be blasphemed if we indulge in these sins. And so when we profess that our God is a God of love, and yet we do not love others, what are we doing? we're hanging Jesus Christ on the wall to be mocked. When we get the reputation of God's, as God's people of robbing people, when we get the reputation of, of dishonesty, of not paying a fair wage for a fair day of work, if we get the reputation for any kind of stealing, what are we doing? We're making our God out to be untrustworthy, incapable of taking care of us. When we behave indecently, If we are not careful about the places we go, the people we associate with, the way we behave, what are we doing? We're giving others opportunity to deride and to berate our God. And let us remember that our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, has already submitted Himself to public disgrace on the cross for us. His enemies, visible and invisible, laughed and rejoiced as he submitted himself to the shameful death of crucifixion. We hear about some of this in Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8, where it is prophesied of him, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's the kind of mocking and disgrace that our Lord Jesus Christ endured for us. And so with this in mind, let us all, every one of us, strive with the help of the Holy Spirit not to cause our God any further humiliation and disgrace. But as the Lord fulfills his word of destruction to Saul, we also see in the third place that he does so yet with a measure of grace. We see in verses 11 to 13 of the merciful work of God through the hands of the people of Jabesh Gilead. Now, the people of Jabesh Gilead, uh, perhaps we're familiar with them. We hear about them back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And what we hear about them, it's not the first time we hear of them in the Bible, but what happens in 1 Samuel is that they had run up against a pretty nasty fella by the name of Nahash the Ammonite. And Nahash and the Ammonites, they came against the people of Jabesh-Gilead and they threatened to make war against them. And the the people of Jabesh-Gilead, they uh, surrendered and they said, make a covenant with us. And you know what this man said to them? He said, okay, I'll make a covenant with you, but I want to gouge out all of your right eyes. That's the covenant he would make with them. That's the deal he would make with them. And at that time, they sent word out and Saul, King Saul had picked up the challenge and he had led Israel's army to a crushing defeat of the Ammonites and saved Jabesh Gilead. And the Lord had ensured that the people of Gilead had not forgotten what Saul had done. And so we read that valiant men, that is the brave men of the town, the honorable men, the strong men of the town, they stole through the night and they cut down the bodies of Saul and his sons and they brought them their bodies back and they buried their, their bones in Jabesh and they mourned for them. And you see, even though Saul was outside of God's favor in life, yet God extended a little grace to him in death. He was not allowed to remain hanging in disgrace. Now, many centuries later, another king would hang, suspended, as it were, between heaven and earth, excommunicated from God. And he also would be cut down and be given a decent burial. And we reminded here, as we read of the, the actions of, Jebesh, of the men of Jabesh-Gilead, rem, reminded here of the care and the tenderness of, of Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus. The difference is that this king was the very son of God. And he was hanging on the cross, not because of his own sin, but because of yours and mine. Saul was pierced for his own transgressions. Jesus was pierced for ours. Saul was extended grace, being buried and mourned, befitting the dignity of a king. Well, how much more must Jesus, who is the king of kings, And this too was a fulfillment of prophecy as is spoken by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. And that's why, congregation, we have to be reminded today again that none of God's word will ever fail. All His promises will come to pass. And so we can believe our God when He says to us, as He says in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, when our God says this to us, we can believe Him because He does not lie or change His mind. He writes, or he says, through the inspired author in Hebrews 9, verse 27 to 28, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We can believe the word of our God when he says this to us, when he makes those kinds of promises to us. When he says to us, as he says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We can believe Him. We can take Him at His word. We can believe Him when He says to us in Second Corinthians 5.21, for he, For God made Him who had no sin, that is Christ, to be sin for us so that we may be the righteousness of God. We can believe God, we can take God at his word, because our God will never lie or change his mind. But congregation, we also have to be aware and listen to these promises as well. In Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39, we hear Jesus saying, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of God. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. We have to listen to these promises as well. We have to listen to what God says in First Thessalonians 5, verse 1 to 3. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And we also have to listen to God's promise in Second Peter 3 verses 9 to 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. These and many more are the sure promises of our God. And so we're reminded this afternoon, indeed, congregation, that the word of our God will come to pass. It's not a matter for dispute. It's not up for debate. What God has said, what he has promised, will indeed come to pass. We see it in our passages this afternoon. Saul died just as it was proclaimed about him. The throne of Israel was now vacant or made vacant by God, ready, For the true king, the man after God's own heart, David, to ascend into that throne. The seed of the serpent had now been submitted to yet another defeat. And the preparation for the true king had come one step closer to fulfillment. God's word will never, ever fail. Let us believe it. Let us trust in him. Let us fear him. Amen. Let's turn once again in our hymnals to Psalm 68. And we rise to sing stanzas 11 and 12.